Okay, we are continuing in James chapter 1. And let me, let me read it from verse 2, and then we'll, we'll cover a large portion. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now we're in James chapter 1, verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, the scriptures are warning us that we will undergo various trials in verse 2. And so he's speaking this to the people in that day, and the scripture speaks that to us. We will undergo trials in our life. It's not a a question of, of, of if, it's just a question of when. And then it says, this helps us. It is something that is good for us, something that does a good work in our lives because of it. And it builds endurance. And I can tell you from experience, and probably you have the same experience in your own lives, that the things that we go through that are troubling are the things that shape us. Now, they can be painful, very painful things where a loved one is hurt, or a loved one is dying, or they can be a, a, a severe sickness, or they can be a constant thing that's, con- that's before us all the time. I'll tell you, when I, when I did, went to my first year of graduate school, for some reason it seemed like all of these people had had more classes than I had ever had as an undergraduate. It just seemed that way. And, and I know that wasn't the case, but I used to, there was a, a verse that I wrote out and I put on the inside of the door of, of my dormitory room in, in the graduate dorms, and it said, uh, it said, Lord God, there is no one able to help in the battle between the strong and those who have no strength. So, Lord God, help me, I pray, and give me victory over my enemies. And I used to pray this prayer every day and as I would go out the door and just saw again and again the hand of God. And then it says in verse 4, it builds endurance. Endurance can have its perfect result. Can have it, it can make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This perfection means that we are filled, that we have the fullness. Now look in verse 5. It says to ask wisdom. Now, interestingly, this is in the context of going through suffering. So in verse 5, when it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. This is in the context of going through a trial. Now, we can ask God for wisdom in many things. That is okay to do. But there is not a guarantee like this that we're going to get it as much as in, in this particular case. This is wisdom concerning a trial that we're going through. So when we're in the midst of a trial, there is a guarantee that when we ask, God, give me wisdom as to why I'm going through this, we will get it. So he says, if you lack wisdom in reference to some trial that you're going through, you can ask God, why is this coming upon me? And God will give it. And it's not a stamping my foot on the ground. Why, why, why? Because it says, remember, you can't doubt. It says that if you doubt in this, you're not going to get it. 
but there is a guarantee that you will get this. There is no such guarantee in many of the prayers we pray that, you know, it doesn't say that ask for a house and you are guaranteed to get that particular house that you pray for. No, God will give you a home. You may not get that particular house or that particular car. But in this, you ask for wisdom, you will get it, and He gives to all generously and without reproach, meaning that you will not be reproved for asking for this. God will give it to you. It will be given Him. So remember, when you are going through a trial, the Scripture says, if any of you ask wisdom, let him ask of God. You can ask God, and He will give you understanding as to why this is happening. That is His guarantee. And it says that we are to pray without doubting. Now look in verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like a flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises and a scorching wind, with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. So, in the midst of trial, again, this is all within the midst of trials. It says, let the brother of humble circumstances, meaning the one who is poor, glory in his high position. God says the poor can glory in their high position. There is so much more than riches. This is what I try to, to, to share with people. This is what I try to share with students. This is what I try to share with my own children. That there is so much more than riches. I have had the, the, the great opportunity to meet many very rich people. Uh, recently I was at... A, at uh, receiving this award in this conference, and, and, um, and it was all of these great business leaders from Houston. And then they were introducing, and there were five people getting awards, and I was one of the five. And as they're introducing all these other people, my daughter leans over and she laughs at me, and she's like, well, what are they going to have for you? I mean, because it's people who've started all these billion-dollar companies. One guy was up there, $30 billion in pipelines his company has, has laid, this company he started. Can you imagine having a company worth $30 billion? Another guy was, was uh, Bob McNair of the Houston Texans, who's made all his money in energy and then paid $750 million to buy the Houston Texans and another $550 million to build Reliant Stadium. And so, you know, they're honoring him. And so my daughter's laughing at me. And in that sense, comparatively... But I've had the the great opportunity to meet all of these people. Another one was Rod Canyon, the former CEO and founder of Compact Computers, that company that almost put IBM out of business. And, And to see and to know these people, and many of them I've known for years. But I'll tell you, the amazing thing is, many of them would wish for the life that I have. To have a stable home, to have a stable family, to have a family where we love one another. This is of so much more value. It says, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. The riches pass away. And then he, he makes reference, he says, and the rich man glory in his humiliation. Because he says, the rich and the poor alike are go- un- going to undergo trials. No matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are, you're going to undergo trials. The rich and the poor alike will undergo these things. 
let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. God, you have given me so much. Then he says, let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Huh? I mean, what kind of glory in my humiliation? If you think, if any of us thinks that because of our position that we somehow attained to, we've graduated from college. Now I'll never be humiliated again. Not true. You will be humiliated. And it says glory in your humiliation. It is good for you. Because the further we move up, the more somehow we feel like things shouldn't happen to us. And the Bible says, let the rich man glory in his humiliation so he'll remember that all of these things that are of the world are going to pass away. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who preserves under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Okay, so he says, blessed is man, in verse 12, who perseveres under trial. This is not just a passive thing. It says, if we persevere under trial, we will be blessed. So in other words, when the trial comes, if instead of having a little hissy fit and and crying and, and complaining to God all the time, if we realize, okay, this is the trial that has come upon my life now, and you walk in it with endurance and crying out to God for wisdom who He guarantees you, In verse 5, that he'll give you that wisdom that you're going to need. He says, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. It is a good thing for you, and in this, you will be blessed. Is there anyone here who does not want to be blessed by God? Okay? So everybody wants to be blessed. If you endure in trial, you will be blessed. I don't know what he's going to do for you. Maybe it'll give you a great spouse and a great family and a great job. I mean, there are things that He lines up for you. Maybe He gives you a greater closeness to Him, which is one of the things that really comes under trial. It is not the glorious times that generally draw us closer to the Lord, but it is the difficult times that draw us closer to God. Blessed is He who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This crown, there are several crowns in the Bible, and we don't distinguish them well in English. This particular crown is the type of crown that one would win in a, in a sporting event, in a competition. That type of crown. He will win this type of crown, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. If you love Him, He promises that under trial, if you endure this, you will be blessed. There is a blessing in this trial. There is a blessing when you get done with the trial in the crown that you get. There is a crown of life. In the trial comes a crown. That is a guarantee. 
There is a blessing in that. He says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself, he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Okay, so there is this progression here. It's interesting that he doesn't say, he says you, you can't blame God because God doesn't tempt anyone. And he doesn't say, oh, well, you, you know, you can, you can uh, blame your parents, blame, blame your roommate, blame your spouse. It says that each one is tempted, that, that, uh, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. There is a personal responsibility that I have to take for my attitude, for my actions, and the way in my life. There is a personal responsibility. Certainly a person may hurt us, but my attitude, my response, is something that I have to deal with. Let me, let me assure you, God gives gifts. What we do with those gifts are up to us. God gives gifts. What we do with those gifts are up to us. God can give a person a tremendous gift that they could utilize in the church. Maybe it's in music, in singing. Maybe it's in teaching. Maybe it's in working with children. There are other gifts. Abilities to work in careers and in jobs. God gives gifts. What we do with those are up to us. Here God says that there are things in life but they're decisions that develop because of our own actions. And this can develop from temptation, can develop into lust, and lust can develop into sin, and sin can result in death. It is not an eternal death for the believer, but for the believer. He is writing to believers, because remember what he told us in, Acts, in, in James chapter 1, verse 1. He says that uh, uh, to the twelve tribes that are dispersed abroad, greetings. These are the tribes of the dispersion. These are the Jews that knew Jesus. He says to them, your sin can accomplish death. He's not writing to the unbeliever here. It can result in physical death. Our sin, our decisions. I'll give you an example of this. I've been memorizing this verse this passage with my sons. And it is a terrific portion and it is in Proverbs chapter 5. I will give you an example of this in my own life as I'm dealing with this with my sons. This Proverbs chapter 5 is written to keep a person from falling into adultery. And I want to work through this with my sons. And so, so in my pocket, in my pocket, I keep Proverbs chapter 5. So I have Proverbs chapter 5 written out and in my pocket. Why do I do this? Because I'm memorizing this chapter. Why am I memorizing this chapter? Because it is a frightening thing for a man to fall into adultery. Look at the result of what will happen. Because remember, when we are tempted, it can turn into lust. The lust can turn into sin. And the sin can result in tremendous loss and even death. In, verse, in, in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1, it says, My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. 
So, the first thing he does, he says, pay attention to what I'm saying. Like, listen, listen to me. Pay attention to what I'm saying. This is really important. Have I got your attention? Pay attention. Remember, statistically, half of you will undergo the pain of divorce. And often, that pain comes because one member of the couple falls into adultery. Happens all the time in the church. So if you think this thing is beyond you, has nothing to do with you, you are wrong. It has everything to do with you and me in our lives. This affects people all around us. He says, my son, listen to me. Listen to me. Give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. He says, I want you to learn to be discreet. There is discreet and proper behavior. I want you to learn it. Look what he's doing. He's setting his sons up to begin to be able to hear. Now he goes through very explicitly. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. This is because, and you, you talk to men who have fallen into adultery. They will say, you know, I was just having lunch with this lady and, and, and uh, just things sounded so sweet. I mean, she really understood me. She really understood me. Well, because the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. You don't realize how much baggage she has in her life. And how many men this woman has slept with that all of a sudden you're getting, getting infatuated with. And smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps lay hold of Sheol. I mean, what do you want to do? You want to follow this woman? She, it's like she's walking into a grave. That's the way it describes her. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of Sheol. <clears throat> she does not ponder the path of life, the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Ultimately, as you what happens is these men will leave their wives and go for this woman. It turns out this woman isn't really what they expected her to be. And that's exactly the way it is. Her feet go down to death and her steps lay hold of Sheol. She doesn't ponder the path of life. In other words, there's no real life there. She doesn't understand the glories of God. Her ways are really unstable. Wait until you marry her and you take on all of her debt and all of the stuff that was in her life. This is what it's warning about. Now look at the outcome of this. Now you look in verse 7. Again, the father says, Now then, my sons, listen to me. I mean, how much more explicit could the word of God be? Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention, he's saying. This is life. This is life. Your life can be destroyed by this. Listen to me. And do, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Again, very explicit. Don't go near her. Don't go near the door of her house. There's no reason for you to be alone with her. No reason. Well, you know, I just wanted to help her out. You know, she was moving, so I went to her house to help her move. No, you have no business doing that. Unless you're with a group of people. Keep your way far from her. Very clear. Now, 
Verse 9, now here's the outcome. Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Think of all your strength, young man. Think of it. You will give your vigor to others and your strength to the cruel one. And your years to the cruel one. The devil will extract years from your life. You see what the Word of God is doing? It's warning. It's giving warning. Because the Word of God knows the lust in the heart of a man. Knows the lust in the heart of a woman. The same thing applies for the woman. Don't go near the door of his house. And some people say, well, I'm not married, so this doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. How many young people fall into illicit relationships? Don't go near the room. You have no business being in the room alone. Well, we were just studying together. Well, you're studying together late at night and you start playing footsie under the table. And then you start sitting next to each other and then you start sitting on the couch next to each other. And before the night is over, you end up in bed. Does that ever happen? Am I just making this up? So he says, don't go near the door of their house. Don't do it. Keep your way separated from them. In verse 10, and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. So my son lifts weights. So I say, now think of this. You spend this time lifting weights. Imagine taking the muscle right off your body and putting it into the body of a stranger. Strangers are going to be filled with your strength. You get caught up in this, here's the warning. Strangers are going to be filled with your strength. The reason I'm telling you this is because in James it says, the result of sin can be death. And it can be. But it's usually a very painful death. Where it extracts the life out of us. Your strength goes into another person. All the muscle you've gone to build goes into another person. And your hard-earned goods go to the house of the alien. Tell my son, picture this. An illegal alien is going by. He gets all the stuff you've worked for. God promises here that that will happen. If you mess around in adultery. You see why I say to my sons, listen to me. My sons, listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. This is what the Word of God promises that will happen. And I have seen this with my eyes multiple times. Men who fall into adultery lose everything. You will groan, in, in verse 11, Proverbs 5, verse 11, you will groan at your final end when your flesh and body are consumed. You will just be groaning. Your flesh and your body will be consumed. You may end up having diseases where your body's consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to, to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. These men who fall into this, they are utterly humiliated in the congregation. They go from having very high positions of honor at work and in the church, and they lose everything. They lose their dignity both in the church they say, well, they don't come to church anymore. But in their work, people always look at them differently. Always after that. And it says that, that look at the attitude of this person. He says in verse 12, 
And you say how I hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. When I used to be instructed, I hated it. I mean, people would tell me this. I hated it. And then you're going to say, I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers nor incline my ear to my instructors. Sin is nothing to mess around with. And this is what James is telling us. He says, this thing that you want to mess around with, this can result in death. You can die because of this. You lose your family. You lose your dignity. You can lose your job. You can lose everything. You say, well, the guy still has money. Yeah, but money without family is worthless. What do you come home to? What do you come home to? I know a guy who fell into adultery. He had a a good position as a physician. He lost his wife. And now he's just all alone. And yeah, he's making plenty of money because he's working lots of shifts, multiple shifts, just to make more money. But then I, I, I was talking to my son about this. He said, look how much this guy's making. I said, yeah, but what does he come home to? There's nothing. The guy's got nobody. He has no fellowship, no church, no relationship. What a miserable, miserable life. You will lose everything. This is why the Bible says, don't mess around with this and you can't go blaming other people. James said, it is all on you. Some people even blame God. Why did God do this to me? God had nothing to do with this. This is what James is saying. God can't tempt anyone. You were led astray by your own stuff. You let this thing precipitate. Remember that temptation goes to lust. Lust goes to sin. The sin results in death. This is to the believer. Okay, let's turn back to James chapter 1. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given... Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. So in verse 16, He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He says, look, the reason He's saying don't be deceived is because there is the opportunity in our lives, to be deceived in this area. To think that the world has something to offer. When I see the young believer start messing around with the things of the world and start praising the things of the world and speaking evil of the things in the body of Christ, my heart just shudders for that person. Just shudders for that person. Because I know What can happen? You start thinking that the world has something to offer. It says in verse 17, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing is from God, not from this world. The world is a terrible, terrible taskmaster. You think the world has something to offer? You think that the folks that are going from bar to bar to party to party and come back and you think that they're really fulfilled? And each time they have to drink more in order to be fulfilled. There is no life in that. He says, I want you to remember, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You chase the things of this world, you will be greatly disappointed. Greatly disappointed. You mess with the things of this world, they will engulf you. 
as a believer, he's saying, be careful. Every perfect gift is from above. In verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. You get this word in your life and your life will be blessed. It is clear. It is direct. You get this word in your life and your life will be blessed. This is the word of truth that can impact your life for good. And when I see young people, young people that are very dear to me, precious to me, and they start neglecting this word, I just grieve for them. And then when I warn them from this word, and I share with them, look, this is what the word says, be careful. And when they start getting angry and bitter, just because I shared with them, I go, "Uh uh-oh, there's a tremendous problem here. If this word of truth, if this word of truth is an offense to you, to turn you away from God, to make you angry, you have gone so far from God. And you'd better repent and turn around. Because you're waiting. You're waiting and, and you're just playing with this issue of death. Where your body, your flesh and body will be consumed. Where you will be humiliated. You will be degraded. And then ultimately it can lead it into death. This is nothing to mess around with. Sin is nothing to mess around with. He's saying everything good. Everything good that your life can have is from God. The world has nothing to offer you. The peace of a home, the peace of a family. But ultimately, the decision is each of ours. Remember I said God gives gifts. It's up to us what we do with it. God provides the opportunity. He provides a way. He provides gifts. He provides the Word of God to guide us. If we neglect this, we will start going the ways of the world. He says in verse 18, He wants us to be like a first fruit. He brought us forth in the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So, look what he says in verse 19. He says, this you know. So, he's saying to them something that they already know. They already know this. And that's what he's telling them. I know you already know this, but I'm repeating this to you. And again, he stresses, this is to my beloved brethren. He's speaking to believers. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is within the context of the word of truth that was back up in verse 18. It has application all over. In fact, just this week I was meditating on this to teach and I was going to be meeting with a company to secure a business deal. And God reminded me by this to not right away say what I would want in this deal, but to just keep my mouth shut and let them say what they were willing to propose, lest... I request something less than what they were going to give initially. You see what I mean? So he reminded me to be quick to hear and slow to speak. But the real context of this, so this has applications in other areas. But the context of this is with regard to the Word of God. He says, everyone must be quick to hear the Word of God, slow to speak, and slow to anger. 
Because, as I told you, and you will see this sometimes, you will take the very Word of God and you will share this Word of God with somebody when you see them going astray. And they will become angry and begin to contest with you in this. See, this is what it says. What do you want me to do? This is what it says. And it warns us to be quick to listen and don't get angry when we hear the Word of God. You know, it is so easy... It is so easy for a pastor to offend the body of Christ. It's so easy to sit there and say, I, I don't like what he said. I'm offended by that. I don't know if I'll even come back to this church again and I'll really get him. No, we just get ourselves. I mean, why is it so easy to offend the body of Christ through the Scriptures? I mean, if it doesn't apply to us, it doesn't apply. The Holy Spirit won't confirm that and just move on. It must be for your neighbor. Maybe it's for your spouse. Maybe it's for your rebellious teenager. Maybe it's not for you. The Holy Spirit will confirm it. But don't take offense against the Word of God. Verse 21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the Word imparted, which is able to save your souls. Look what he says. In humility, be willing to receive the word imparted, which is able to save your souls. This word imparted, in humility, receive it. In humility, be willing to receive it. The word of God should take us, as we read this thing, it should impact us and begin to speak to our lives. Verse 22, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in whatever he does. So you have this mirror, and you look at yourself, and um, I don't know, you, you, you just, your hair is sticking up and going crazy, because you just rolled out of bed. And you look at it, you go, boy, I've got to comb my hair. Then you walk away and you don't comb it. And you go out, and, you, and everybody else sees this thing, but you don't see it anymore. This is, he says, what the Word of God is. If we read it, and we don't apply it. Let me give you an example. I was really convicted of, of judging. Of, and, and, uh, and I wanted to be particularly careful because, because uh, uh, in, in certain circles, you know, they're, they're, they speak about politicians and this and that, and, and they say things about them. And, and I was talking with my son, who's been listening to a lot of talk radio. And on talk radio, they can say a lot of interesting things about people. And I told them, and I said... You know, it, it, it is one thing to disagree with someone's policy, but be careful when you start going after the individual as a human being. Because I had been meditating throughout this, this, this book of James. And so, for myself, I wrote down a series of scriptures on judging. Because I said, Lord, you've got to do this in my life. Let me give you one of them from James 5.9. It says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another. So that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Do not complain, brethren, so he's speaking to brothers, against one another, so that you may not be judged. 
In other words, if I start complaining all the time about other people, I will be judged. Isn't that interesting? If I complain about other people, I will be judged. So I wrote that verse down, I put it in my pocket, and I pulled this thing out several times a day and just memorized that verse. Then I started memorizing other verses from Romans 2.1. You judge, you who judge, practice the same thing. And I thought, that is so true in many ways. The one that I judge, I practice the same thing. What is, what is the thing that bothers you most in another person? Think of the person that's really a frustration to you. What bothers you about them? Now think about it. Do you ever do what bothers you about what they do? Do you ever do that? Do you ever do it? Ever? You must. Because the Bible says, you who judge, practice the same thing. And that's why Jesus says, you know, you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, but you have a log in your own. And so there's this, you know, I think the NIV says there's a beam in your own eye. So imagine this, there's a beam that's impaled in your eye. And your eye's just hanging out. And you're like, give me, give me some forceps. Let me take that speck out of your eye. And you're like, <laughs> got a beam in the, your eye. This is, the, this is the picture Jesus gives us. This is what he was speaking to me about judging. I didn't want to take this as that thought. It came upon me that I'm judging too much. And just let this thing go. God was speaking to me about judging. Or, here's another one from Romans 14.4. Really interesting. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand because God is able to make him stand. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Before his own master, he will stand or fall. And God is able to make him, and and he will stand because God is able to make him stand. I have no business judging my brother. That's what it says. That's that's what this thing says. In in Romans 14, 13, Therefore let us not judge one another. In James 4, 12, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Remember, now it's not even brother, it's neighbor. Neighbor doesn't imply brethren. I wanted to take this and to write it down and keep it in my pocket until I had all of these verses memorized. This is what we have to do. Or else, it is like looking in the mirror, seeing that... Our hair is all out of, out of place, and we just get up and go anyway. And everybody says, boy, isn't that person ugly? Everybody else sees the ugliness, except ourselves. This is the analogy that James is making. If we don't deal with these issues, everybody else sees it in our lives, but we don't see it. That's the picture He gives us. So that when we read this Word, when you read the Scriptures, when I read the Scriptures, something is to happen where I go, Gulp? Uh-oh. I'm in trouble. This is what's supposed to happen to move us into a place where we obey and follow the Word of God. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for this word, for the word of truth. Father, I pray that you take these young people and you cause them to walk with you. Let them be free, Lord, to walk with you according to your scriptures, according to your word. To keep them free of adultery, to keep them free of sin that will draw them into death. Father, your word is filled with warnings, with blessings, with instruction. Father, I pray that they would not be like the natural man to look at their faces and then just walk away. But Father, that they would deal with issues as they come up in their lives. Deal with them. Father, have mercy on these young people, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I commit them to you. Amen.